0: Forget you, Barbara.
1: Be afraid. Be very afraid.
2: Truly. We all go a little mad sometimes.
1: I'm not gonna hurt
2: you. I'm just gonna bash your brains. Why are you son of a bitch?
1: I'm scared to close my
2: eyes. I'm scared to open them. He's oh it's alive!
0: He's it's alive! He's alive! It's alive.
2: Hello and welcome back to Gavin Steph versus the Forces of Evil. With each episode we delve into another dark corner of horror to select the genre, subject, or topic to dissect and submit an entry to a guest judge and attempt to win a point that we'll total up throughout the season. Joining me for the greatest Australian battle since the Great Emu War of 1932, Gavin Thomas is here. How are you doing, Gav?
1: I'm very well, Steph. Uh, looking forward to continuing my winning run on these episodes as well.
2: Yeah, I, I've got a lot of ground to make up at this point now. I've, I've, I've left myself with a lot of work to do, as I say, in sporting terms. So uh, hopefully the fight back starts here. I'll claw it back after Christmas. Uh, so this week, as we said, we, we're going down under and aura. Got the question that I struggled with more than I thought I would when it came down to picking a film. What defines Australian and New Zealand cinema feel?
1: Well, I think, not just horror cinema, I think uh, Australian and, and New Zealand cinema is defined by two things. They are very singular cultures based on the fact they're islands thousands of miles away from everywhere else. So there are films that are very much about the culture of those places. So one that sticks in my head is an Australian kind of docudrama, spoof docudrama thing called The Club about an Australian little football club. That's just singularly the most Australian thing I think I've ever seen, <laughs> and uh, and then the other side of that is a film that, it's about landscape, and and the the fact that the landscape of both those countries is quite, well, singular really. You know, it's uh, if you think about both the films we've picked, we've picked a film about how people try to control the landscape, and then another one where essentially the landscape is. Endless. So I think landscape and culture are the two things that define them in a way that perhaps not for other other countries cinema.
2: Yeah, I think that's a, a great shot, I mean, especially when you look at Australia, it's got this great vastness that can create isolation by just dropping you almost anywhere outside of a city. So every, almost every film you watch in that sense, because it's so big, it makes you feel very isolated and small in, inside it. Um, I, I spent ages thinking over this as to is it down to director, is it down to stars neither Do we look at who they I mean I think I eventually went for a score on Australian director and Nicole Kidman's in it. how much Australian do you want? So uh, i I'm not quite as uh, not quite as deep as you're thinking, I don't think.
1: So in terms of you know, in kind terms of Australian we think about it as well that it's it's a country full of desert that's essentially surrounded by a desert, because that part of the Pacific as well, as you get a bit further up, starts becoming very barren. And, you know, it's it's isolation that kind of defines it a bit. But we also have a guest, and uh, a guest far more qualified than either of us to talk about it. Our guest is Andy Fife. Andy is a music journalist of many years standing, has written for NME, for Select, for... Mojo Magazine for Q and smash hits, but most fittingly in terms of this is a New Zealander who's lived in Australia. So Andy, welcome to the pod. And uh, for you, what defines Australia in the New Zealand cinema? Uh, Thank you, Um, great to be here. Um, I think that the thing about isolation,
0: I I think you're right, Gavin, uh, isolation and environment. Um, Two things that, can possibly explain the isolation thing. Um, New Zealand, where I was born, <clears throat> um, the nearest country is a three hour plane ride away in, uh, in Australia. So if you go from Britain, fly for three hours, you get to Greece. You've crossed how many countries? You've crossed a continent. Um, New Zealand, that's the nearest place. That's the nearest foreign country. <laughs> uh, so, There is a massive distance between the two, and New Zealand really is the last place on Earth. Um, When you're there, you understand just how far away you are from everything else that's happening. Um, Australia is enormous. Um, It's mostly nothing. Uh, And if you you get a map, um, a scale map of the continents and stuff, um, Australia is actually about the same, although it's quite small on globes and on, on world maps. If, if you take it proportionally, it, it's actually the same size as continental USA, pretty much. There's, you know, a square mileage. Yeah. So it is vast and it's only got whatever it is 20 million people, is it? Yeah. Um, you look at the, the, the borders of the various states the federal states, um, most of them are straight lines because there's no contours or rivers to or big lakes or whatever to, to, to go around and sort of cause a, a, a natural um, a, a border. So they're just straight lines. They're just arbitrarily drawn squares. Um, you know, the place is vast. I remember when I was living there, um, a friend, a, a flatmate took me to his um, hometown of uh, Mungandai which is up in uh, the New South Wales Queensland border out in the middle of nowhere and we drove out of Sydney and we got out to a point and he sort of stopped the car pulled it over it's just red sand everywhere desert and um, he goes stand on the roof and I thought what are you talking about he goes stand on the roof I thought, this is some jokey's plan. I mean, I'm going to stand on the roof, he's going to drive off and I'm going to be left tumbling back into the road or something stupid, you know. <laughs> anyway, I get up on the roof and he goes, now turn around. And turn around 360 degree horizon. Everything was just flat in every direction. And I just suddenly thought, oh, my God, he could actually just bury me out here, couldn't he? And I'm (laughs) done. (laughs) Horror movie plot or what? But, um, you know, it's vast, it's empty. um, And I think both of these movies have that vastness and that emptiness about them. Um, And Australians, I think particularly Australians, more, less New Zealanders are terrified of their environment. they've got eight eight of the top ten deadliest animals or something um, and you know if you get lost out there no one's coming to help you you're gone it's you know it is it's a it's a
2: terrifying place because and everything looks the same. Well that was going to be my next answer so the other thing that makes Australia so terrifying is that you lot who've lived there keep telling us that everything will kill us like if any, any time you mentioned that you might be going to Australia, it's always like, oh, you've got to watch yeah. out for like... Yeah. And we don't even know if it's real. We don't even know if you've made some of these animals up. We've never seen them in real life. <laughs> well, you know,
0: even, even the platypus, which is, you know, supposedly, the, you know, little kind of bits of animals stuck together. has um, got barbs that will can sting you and, and, um, and, and nearly kill you. Um, I don't know when the last person to die of platypus was, but you know. Uh,
2: <laughs> a platypus attack.
0: Yeah. That, that's um,
2: an embarrassing death certificate. That's what you don't want to see them in the papers.
0: Yeah, no, no yeah. blue ringed octopus or shark <laughs> attack, is it? <laughs>
2: yeah. Um, platypus, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Embarrassing we to go.
1: I always <laughs> wanted to go to New Zealand till I saw a wet. And I thought, there's no way I'm going to a country where there's cockroaches the size of bananas. I've that's, actually that's...
0: been I've actually crawled through a cave and gone crunch on top of a cave wetter. Uh. And I mean, it's disgusting. It's absolutely disgusting. They are huge and just terrifying. Luckily, caves, it's dark. You can't see them. So, you know. <clears throat> Suddenly the Welsh valley seem more appealing than they do. at at least in New Zealand there's only one thing that can kill you Um, and it's a spider that is um, it's it's a relation to the redback the Australian redback, it's called the catapult spider Um, and it can, I I think the last person to die from a bite was about 80 years ago or something Um, or the last person to be bitten by one was 80 years ago Um, but it's only poisonous when it's the female. It's only when she's ready to be um, impregnated and it's, you know, sort of one month a year and they only live in like two square miles of the country. So,
2: you know, New Zealand, you're pretty safe. Well, as a rugby fan, the other thing that kills you in New Zealand is hope whenever you play. We're beginning to find that against Ireland, aren't we? <laughs> So, Gav, it is Antipodean and Aura this week. So do you want to kick us off
1: with your pick? I'm picking uh, Peter Weir's Picnic at Hanging Rock.
2: What we see
0: and what we seem are but a dream, a dream within a dream. You
1: must learn to love someone else.
2: Apart from me, Sarah. I won't be here much longer. Good morning, girls. Good morning, Mrs. Appleby.
0: Well, young ladies, we are indeed fortunate in the weather for our picnic to Hanging Rock. I have instructed, mademoiselle, that as the day is likely to be warm, you may remove your gloves
2: once the drag has passed through Wood End. You will partake of luncheon at the picnic grounds near the rock. Once again, let me remind you, the rock itself is extremely
0: dangerous, and you are therefore forbidden any tomboy foolishness in the matter of exploration,
1: even on the lower slopes. Before you say, that's not a horror film, well, I'm going to argue for uh, the next couple of sections that there actually is. But essentially, very simple plot, a group of schoolgirls at an expensive private girl's school in Australia in 1900, go for a picnic to celebrate Valentine's Day. Four of them don't come back. And the mystery around that is essentially the plot of the whole film. It is, yes, it's a costume drama, but it's more than that. It's, uh, it's an interesting film in that, as much as it's a costume drama, it's a very period piece. It, it's darker, it's deeper than that. It's a film based in the psyche of Australia. It's a base, film based in the psyche of colonialism. But also, and this is going to be my argument, a film about cosmic horror. So I'm going to start with my first chapter, which I'm calling We're Doomed, in a very gentle way. It's the sense of doom, the sense of tension, is absolutely palpable throughout the whole film. From the very start, we have the the shot of the landscape and the music is kind of partially orchestral, partially just this weird kind of electronic sound. And you get a sense that nothing feels right. And it's exactly the same in the school in the school as well. The two main characters, I suppose you can call them that Miranda and Sarah, Their relationship dynamic is strange the relationship dynamic is just slightly off from the start. And then kind of one of the characters at one point says, well, we're all doomed. And that's what you get throughout, really, in terms of it. And the landscape itself doesn't seem, as much as they've tried to tame it, and there's a scene where they're, they're having a, a party and there's a string quartet down by the lake and they're trying to to make it England it's not England the landscape never allows it to be England and that sense of doom when they arrive at the hanging rock and the birds are flying off and it's just a, a weird tension going on but then there's also other things as well the idea that the clock stop is another potent I can't stand the ticking close to my heart. The idea that time is dangerous. Time is is something to be scared of. And then when the clock stops, when they're at the picnic again, you get a sense that time is this kind of weird force, as much as the landscape is. And as much as there's nothing scary for want to a better phrase, you never feel it. Never allows you to settle. Do in the conversations between the girls quite weird it all uh, the fact they're all dressed in white and it almost seems ritualistic there's a kind of weird ritualistic kind of quality to what they're doing uh, and there's absolutely nothing that really kind of says oh something terrifying is going to happen and but the music again it doesn't allow you to settle it's just all these weird kind of long notes and then occasionally there'll be some definable music but then it'll it'll be under a couple of these weird electronic noises it's forever really trying to kind of keep you on your uh, on your guard and when the girls are walking up through the the rocks themselves there's Uh, The way the camera kind of pans, sometimes it's like they're being watched, like there's something in the clefts of the rocks, just watching them. And other times there's these high shots, and there's a sense forever that they're almost like prey in the landscape, that there's something just stalking them quietly throughout. And everything, well, even the fact that St. Valentine, St. Valentine was a martyr. There's this centre we're celebrating Saint uh, Saint Valentine's and this kind of martyrism. It's uh, it's there's almost a a classic horror line, oh we'll we'll only be gone a little while the girls say when they go up in the rock, you know it's the scream thing. I'll be right back. Never say I'll be right back. (laughs) It's
2: Randy from Scream. Never say Uh, I'll be right back because you won't be right back.
1: Yeah, yeah, never say that. And it, it also, as well, the character, the individual characters feel doomed. There's a, there's a sense of doom for, for Sarah. Sarah, as much as she doesn't go away, she always feels like almost kind of sacrificial and everybody talks about it in that sense. And when she dies, that's, you know, you knew that was coming. And it's, a, it's almost, that's the natural end of it rather than any sense of resolution from anything else. So it's a film, as much as on the, on paper it doesn't look like a horror film, and I've never seen any real descriptions of a horror film, the sense of doom, the sense of dread is absolutely palpable. I don't know if uh, either of you have a, a view on that.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think the, um, the music is incredibly important because it is eerie and spooky. There's a lot of, um, we we're talking about isolation and emptiness and stuff. There's a lot of those shots of, the, the, the rocks, the you know, faces in the rocks that you're perceiving in the rocks. There's this sense of, even though there are no Aborigine people in it, there's a sense that they're there, they're present in some way, apart from the guide who helps yeah, yeah. search. Um, <clears throat> it's that, uh, the, the you're saying about the clocks ticking, the, the author of the book, Joan Lindsay, um, apparently clocks used to stop around her all the time. So this is something that she brought of herself into the into the whole story and and, and so on. Um, but the yeah, it, it's it's an eeriness that adds this horrificness, this hot horror element, um, otherworldliness and and um, so many things that are unexplained and just left.
1: Yeah, just. I left I'll pick up on about that, but yeah, there's, there's no resolution. It doesn't do what cinema naturally does, which offer you resolution. So as much as that sense of doom, yeah, and we've yeah. talked about this in other films, like Rosemary's Baby, where there's a sense of doom, but it leads you to a resolution. This doesn't. There's a massive sense of doom. There's a, all these portents, but the portents to nothing because you don't actually find out what's going on at any point.
2: I do think I, I kind of you at that point where I was waiting for something to happen. But you, it, you've always got, it's, the landscape's incredible and it does from, it's it sort of, it's terrifying from the start and you don't really know why. I've got a bit of a problem with the music at the start because we're going from flute to panpipes and I, it, I'm really not a big fan of that. It's like a kung fu film. like Kill, kill Billabong. It, like, it was this <laughs> weird, weird sort of panpipe music coming in and it took me a while to adjust, but yeah, it's just always got this kind of like, I, I don't even know. Like there's just this vibe that just hangs over it, where it just always feels ominous.
1: It well, don't you think it... that, um, the panpipe brings a kind of other worldliness to it, but it doesn't feel settled in place?
0: Because no, it just you don't, really I, I don't know really... how many people would have, how have, have widespread pan pipes would have been then either, really. I think they might've been quite, quite an exotic instrument
2: at that point. I, I think there's probably a good reason why they, they weren't widespread. <laughs> <laughs> about five minutes in and I thought, what yeah. the shit are they doing here? <laughs> so really they, weren't, they weren't
0: in every town centre being played,
2: you know, to, <laughs> to some sort of beef Fun. and backing track by then, were they? You know? Bus, busking on bum beeps. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, it's, it's got that, like they say, I think that the landscape works perfectly for it. And, again, especially from an outsider, which most people will be because Australia is so unique in, it, in its nature and in its environment. It almost feels foreign to, to, to most people. So that kind of structure being so unique is not something you will have come across it automatically. Mm. Like, mm. this is strange. This is odd. This is something that you don't trust from the off. And then obviously the girls starting to act a little bit strange just adds on top of that.
0: Yeah, the the point you made earlier, Gavin, about um, the the um, indigenous, the, the Australian and New Zealand cultures being very prevalent in in the cinema of the countries, um, I think in this one it's interesting that it's it's trying. It was at a time when both countries were sort of emerging from this idea that everything had to be Little England, Little Britain. Uh, And what locally is called the the cultural cringe, where um, we sort of shied from actually expressing our own culture and our own, um, the world that was around us. And we tried to express it only in ways that um, related back to the home country. Um, My parents, um, you know, only one generation ago, they, they didn't. To come to Britain until they came over to holiday to see me in the late 80s but they still always grew up and referred to Britain as home you know <laughs> New Zealand wasn't home home was the old country kind of thing and, and there's nothing as as kind of dedicated to the old country as an expat or the or the offspring of expats you know um, particularly Scottish ones um, in uh in new zealand and canada and so on you
1: know like scandinavian americans and their willingness to eat absolutely disgusting foods in the name of yeah and yeah,
0: still build their barns with those funny peak roofs but, yeah, you know. yeah
1: but that kind of leads me really nicely on to my uh, second chapter which i'm calling an actually hostile environment because the environment is the villain in this well the environment and time i suppose and right from the start, when they're talking about going to the picnic, there's references to poisonous snakes and poisonous ants, and then you see the ants and you see the wildlife, so you know this is a landscape which can kill you if you're not careful. And, but there's also a kind of another sense to it as well. So when they leave the school in the, the cart, I don't know what you call it, and they go through the town, the town feels like the Wild West. That it doesn't feel like the 20th century which is ba- barely on the cusp of. It feels older, weirder, stranger, just slightly more on the edge of everything.
0: They're also, the girls are also viewed as almost like alien-like mm. to, the, to the locals. You know, they're completely separate. When they go to the church at one point and they come out of the church and everyone's just staring at them, you know, they're, they're exotic, yeah, I, paradise kind of thing.
1: And the way they're dressed is consciously doing that, isn't it? The way they're dressed yeah. with... Uh, that they stand out so the girls are in that pristine white and then all the the locals are in kind of work clothes and greys and olives and duns and they're far more part of the landscape and the Englishness of the girls and the Englishness of the school is clearly in direct contrast to what the the landscape is like and it's you know for me it's a film as much about uh, colonialism and about the dangers of colonialism, in that they're trying to imprint something that cannot be imprinted on this landscape. Because this isn't the landscape of Oxfordshire or Surrey or wherever they imagine this school is. And going for a nice picnic in a beauty spot, well, yeah, clearly that's what you do. That's what you do in England. But this isn't a nice beauty spot. This is a landscape full of things that can kill you, with changes in weather that can kill you. And... And, kind of, and other things clearly within it, and but when and the landscape as well, you know, kind of the way it's shot. There, there's a kind of lushness, there's a greenness to it, and but then it becomes slightly more primeval. The scene when the girls start walking up towards the rock itself, and they're seen crossing a stream. That feels older, more primeval. That landscape feels. Older than humanity. And that's, you know, kind of a big part of it. This is a landscape, this is a force, this is a world that is nothing to do with humanity. Humanity has just stumbled on this world. This isn't a humanity's world. And as much as a school is controlled and managed in a way that the landscape isn't. As they kind of go up to then towards the rocks, it's quite interesting the way the camera is filtered. camera is is quite heavily green filtered at times but then if that's stripped away and it's there's grey and blue and not a lot else when they're up in the rocks and it feels unnatural everything that the way it's shot feels unnatural and the landscape shots themselves there's almost like a mistiness and it's deliberately meant to feel I think otherworldly that it's a bit like the concept of fairy in kind of British uh, folklore. The idea there are points where the, the barrier between our world and this other world are a bit thinner and you can travel through these gaps a bit more easily. And that's where it feels like this, you know, this otherworldliness throughout there. And it, it also reminded me of the film that uh, Peter Weir did after this, The Last Wave which is far more urban, it's set in 1970s kind of as well. Melbourne, if I remember, it's been a while since I've seen the film, but uh, that's a film as well about the landscape and about the climate of Australia and about how, no matter what you try to imprint on it, there's an older, wilder culture to it.
0: I think it's so Sydney,
1: the last way. Sydney, is Sydney, I yeah, so. right. I think so. Yeah. And, it, looks, uh,
0: it looks more like Sydney than, than Melbourne, but I'm, I'm not I'm not
1: certain. It's 20-odd years since I watched it, <laughs> so, you know, it's. Uh, I have a hazier memory of it. But, you know, again, it's a film about the Australian climate and about how any attempt to imprint something other than uh, the landscape on it is doomed to failure almost. So uh, that's where I'm in terms of... So, Steph, we've already talked about the landscape. What do you think in terms of the way it's shot and everything? Do you think it, uh, it brings a kind of otherworldliness to it?
2: Yeah, and I think that's kind of... I, I'm, I'm going to throw my confession at the start then, right? This is the first film we've watched for this podcast that I've not enjoyed. <laughs> I didn't... I, I wasn't a fan. I, I love the cinematography. I think the cinematography's on it's great. But there's something about the film as a whole... And I think it's because it doesn't do that enough. Like, you always know that it's there. You always feel that it's there. And then it never really runs with it. And that's kind of, whether maybe it's me that I'm a bit uh, confined by structure and that I, I needed a little bit more of that. But because we never get that conclusion, it's just like this long mystery that never really goes away. It's free-form jazz. And we've had this conversation in <laughs> private. I don't like jazz either. I, 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 I need that little bit of something in there for me. And I think if we had delved into that, and we, we would have seen, be it the, the history of the land, or be it something otherworldly, or we could have just sort of delved a little bit further. Instead, what we got was a lot of posh people talking about other oh, girls are still missing.
0: I, I think a lot of that is down to the... Um, Film industry at the time in Australia, yeah. which was there was no money. You know, it's yeah. all very. There's a lot of handheld camera and that sort of thing. Not because they wanted that sort of shakiness, that shaky independence, but that's because they, they didn't have anything. So it's <laughs> it's independent and it's shaky. You know, this <laughs> um, it it. it and yet, it suits the mood of the of the of the piece. I think. Yeah, and um, I did, c-
2: cinematography wise, it, it, it's absolutely fantastic. Some of the shots, yeah. the the things that they do without really doing anything, it is fantastic. The the feeling that they give you, like you, if you are to explain a scene of well, three girls climb up a rock that doesn't particularly look like they're going to fall or be in any sort of danger, but it's absolutely bloody terrifying. People would think you've gone mad. But when you watch that film, that's exactly what it is. It's it's four girls climbing up. At one point, it was just a normal rock. But the way that they shot and the way that they move, it is superb on that front. So I do get from, from the very start of that, you always feel uneasy. And I said, because everyone feels like an outsider. Like the Australians kind of feel like outsiders in their own town because of this school. And then the girls don't really belong in that environment, so they're like outsiders as well. So everything's just really odd, and nothing really mashes together. And that's what works for that. Yeah. Well, but the mystery that <laughs> it's always a mystery and never really delves a bit would And don't get me wrong, they could have gone completely wrong with it because sometimes if you reveal too much,
1: there's nothing bloody worse. I, I, I will talk about that later on in one of my, <laughs> my later chapters. But
0: the um, the thing about Again, about this Englishness and you know the, the the Fitzherberts who go and have the picnic down in the yeah. in, in the in the woods and stuff and, and you know it is their their sort of like their Kentish back garden, isn't it? You yeah. know they're having Sunday yeah. Sunday picnic and reading the papers and uh, out in the garden. Um, you know, again, this is set in what, around 1900, isn't it? So yeah, it's 1900. Yeah, it's only like a few decades after the last transport ships went went to Australia you know the, it's it's the country is is very much an infant country um, <clears throat> being built on the back of freed convicts um, they don't understand the country they're in they just they just don't get it they, you know um, a lot of them would be first generation born there um, and you get Mrs Appleyard's description of Bournemouth at the end when she's drunk and rambling. Yes. <laughs> um, so, you know, she loves Bournemouth because it hadn't changed in 40 years, and that's miraculous and wonderful, whereas around her everything is changing at such a pace and she can't control any of it, and she's rapidly unravelling as fast as her bun is disintegrating. Yes.
2: That's,
0: um, <laughs> you, <can't>, you, <laughs> you
2: know,
0: uh, um, so yeah there's that that cultural exploring that how how australia became itself you know how how it stopped being an agent of of england and became its own separate identity
1: it's a film about
0: identity and australia uh, aboriginal and as well at the time aboriginal culture was starting to be taken seriously instead of just being oppressed and marginalized the the sort of the talking, chattering classes were were starting to realise that you know there is a civil rights issue here as much as there was in mm-hmm. in, in the states. You know, they're just being thrown in the sixties, and there is as big a problem with institutional racism in Australia as there ever was anywhere else. Um, so this is Peter. We're starting to explore that as
1: well. Yeah, and and I think it's a film about that change, isn't it? You know, it's, it's quite interesting because if, if some of the the landscape shots are almost quite Victorian, like painterly, they look like Victorian landscape painting. It's but Victorian landscape painting is of the South Downs. It's not this weird, inhospitable kind of uh, yeah. cultural place, really. Uh, and it's quite interesting as well. Uh, at one point, uh, I think it's Edith says, "Oh, this place is nasty." And it's the only time that you know anyone makes any comment about the danger of the uh, environment. It's almost like we are we are the sons and daughters of empire. We we can place our flag anywhere we want, and nothing is dangerous and nothing is a problem because we have done this right across the world. Mm. Uh, and it's that breaking down that kind of uh, idea as well. I think you know it's a, it's a film very much about the empire and colony. Yeah, it's that that middle-class white eagle. You know, it's very much that, isn't it? But it's done through the landscape. I think the book was written in the 60s, wasn't it? And uh, done through the landscape of 60s Australian culture and 70s Australian culture of Peter Weir. So uh, it's something slightly different. But on the subject of the book, it leads me on to my third chapter.
0: If if I could just... One one other thing about the environment. Um, You know, Hanging Rock is actually... It's a real place. Yeah. Um, But... I haven't been to Hanging Rock itself, but right nearby is a place called Mount Macedon, which um, it's only it's only an hour's drive out of Melbourne. So you know it's not that far. It just shows how how quickly it goes from urban to to empty oh, wow. in Australia. Um, Mount Macedon is a very very spooky place. Um, it's got a giant crucifix on top of it, which is a war memorial, um, and it's just the first time I went there was with some, some people. and um, We might have been a little stoned, maybe, maybe not. <laughs> 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 and and but, but it was bright sunshine in Melbourne. By the time we got to Mount Macedon, it was foggy and you couldn't see 20 metres in front of you. Um, and walking up the path and suddenly this big crucifix looms out of the fog. And I was just going, where the hell are we? And they went, oh, yeah, um, you can... The clear that you can see hanging rock from here, and just like, oh no, I want to get out of here. There's fear just <laughs> <gripped> me
1: you <laughs> set in the car. Well, you came back, Andy, so you know that's good. You, you came back. Yeah, you <laughs> know <how> everyone does. <laughs> but, um, yeah, you sorry, know, sorry, on, carry on. No, there's no problem. <laughs> on the subject of the, the book, so uh, my third chapter, which I'm calling unknown knowns, known unknowns, is it's a it's a book that well, the book itself as well has no resolution. The book itself has no resolution. But yeah, I think it was in the 90s, maybe early 2000s, a missing final chapter was discovered and published where essentially you find out the mystery. And the mystery is quite strange in terms that the girls find uh, a rock that they can travel through but then they might disappear through it one of the math teacher turns into a crab and leads the girls into the rock their corsets are hanging in space and time and it it would appear but even then it doesn't really explain but it would appear they're in some kind of time causal slip that's uh, sucked them into something else maybe interdimensional but even then that's an actual resolution it's not really a resolution because you don't find out anything but the film doesn't even bother with that (laughs)
2: the
1: film ends with the school closing and no one's found and the girl who comes back Irma she never really explains what's going on in the the book in the final chapter of the book she's actually physically prevented uh, a rock slides down to prevent her coming through and those kind of that lack of resolution is about the power of story. You know, do stories need resolution? Is is the real horror from this that there's a story with no resolution, you just kind of held. And as the film ends, and it'd been a while since I'd last watched it, as a film ends, I was kind of again it was like, oh my god, it was just there was a tension because there was no resolution. There's like a lack of resolution that does for it. And then the there's this constant otherworldliness, and I know you said you didn't like the pipe stuff, but I think they add to this kind of weirdness because it feels like something that... It doesn't feel like a costume drama set in 1900s Australia, because this music is weird and it feels older and uh, and uh, it's it feels like whenever you see Greek theatre, it's the kind of music you have in Greek theatre. If you go and... To euripides or something it's that kind of music and it feels older and ancient and there's always this constant other uh, worldliness and but the story itself also tells you that there's this just kind of there's this weird non uh non-resolved thing to it. at one point what the policeman says there are no details and and that's the case there are no details the film it sends, the film itself is Incomplete deliberately. There's a sense of confusion. It doesn't ever really let you settle down. The power of, well, the power of whatever it is, isn't seen on what it does to the girls. The the, the horror isn't seen on what it does on the girls because you never see the girls. It's the impact on others. The impact on Michael, who was one of the last ones to see him alive, and he almost kills himself going to find them on the impact in the school, because Miss Appleyard, as Andy says, you know, literally kind of unravels, you know, her hair unravels, the whole lot goes. Sarah, who it was fixated on Miranda, uh, becomes more and more desperate. And the, the other thing I really like about it, is that even, at, I'm trying to think of a film with there's no like really clear resolution, even in something where you're left with a kind of hanging thing, like I'll, I'll use Inception as an example. So Inception, is he still in the dream, is he not? But, but you know, you're left with a question and you're left with something you can debate. Well, this, it doesn't really do that. It just kind of ebbs away. The film just kind of slides away into nothingness, and then you left kind of felt, oh, I'm, I'm unsure what's happened. I'm unsure what I'm meant to feel. I'm unsure what I'm meant to think. And I'm sure what I'm meant to say. And, and that's real powerful for a film. And it was brave on Peter Weir's part as well, I imagine, because to do something like that, to leave a film with so many threads just hanging there, it wouldn't have happened in Hollywood. Hollywood wouldn't have allowed it to happen. They would have asked for an end. But because he was essentially doing this on very little money in a guerrilla sense, he was allowed to do what he wanted. And I think that gives a real, real strength. And again, this is something a character says. This is kind of I forbid, idle and morbid gossip. And the film does that as well. The film doesn't allow idle and morbid gossip. It doesn't give you the chance to surmise because this, the clues are minimal. So there's no p- a chance for you to go, oh, could it be this? Could it be that? And a film I'm almost sure we will talk about in a, a while, uh, the Japanese original Ring. I really like that film because it doesn't feel the need to explain what's going on. It just literally says, well, it's goblins. And I've mentioned this before. This doesn't even do that. It just will. You've got nothing to hang on. Nothing, nothing to think about. And, you know, f- for me, a film that's brave enough to... to give you no sense of resolution really is a film that needs uh, celebrating, really. But you didn't like it, Steph.
2: <laughs> well, it's not so much that it doesn't give you an answer. It's that I'm still not really 100% sure what the question is. Other than they go missing. Where you know, did where they, they go? go? Surely yeah, that's well, the yeah. Thing. <laughs> <laughs> but It's not even sort of where did they go so much as how did they go? Where, when did they... like? There's so many things that you don't really... It's, it's utterly bizarre. And then everyone's just asleep as well. Which again feels like it's this other force, but is it another force? Is there a reason all these things that happen without ever really being explained? I, I it does create that whole... you're you're drawn in like what what the hell is going on? I, I would think say, like a few more little drops along the way to to even so you can lead yourself down up down a path even if it's the wrong one. Whereas I I don't know whether as well it's because. Sorry to to drop the blame fully on your shoulders, you Gav, but I don't know whether it's because obviously my first viewing of it is through the lens of a horror podcast, and then there's so many things going on that you go, well, it is—is is there a horror without the resolution? Is there a horror there? Well, there is a horror there, but is there a horror? For, it, I I I don't even know what questions I'm asking anymore. I don't know where I am. I'm like the girls. I I could be in any time dimension or space at the moment. I don't know where I am we'll after watching it. The um the, the the missing
0: chapter at the end, I mean I think um Joan Lindsay was um persuaded by a publisher not to 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 just chop it off and to not publish that that final chapter in the original book. Um and Peter Weir said he he wasn't even aware that it existed when he made the movie, and until until the sort of mid eighties, he wasn't he he was only aware of it then. Uh, but in a way, the whole this whole idea of some sort of alien portal that you know, and then Miss um, McCraw comes back to the school, turns into a, in, in her pantaloon, um, turns into a crab and t- whisks the girls off through the portal. Um, I don't know. I think I would have enjoyed that. I definitely <laughs> think I would have enjoyed that. I, I think it would have been so jarring as a as a resolution, even though all the way through. I mean, Peter Weir is working with what he's with the story he's got. Um, all the way through, there is this idea that there is watchful eyes that we unexplained watchful eyes, and um, you know, Sarah talks to Mademoiselle Pontier about um, Miranda new things, you know. Um, yeah. and all this sort of stuff that there's there is a weird suggestion that there's some kind of mystical force at work here whether it's alien or you know um, um supernatural or whatever even though there's no mention of that in the book until until they finally published it with the original x ex- last chapter um and yet weird suggestion all the way through the movie is that this sort of force whatever it is exists somehow in the background
1: that's I what think the camera it, work is isn't it When the camera works tracking them and it's yeah uh, yeah in the um, and the rocks and everything miss and, and
0: mccraw reading um you know pythagorean theory and um the whole sort of thing you know there's um Theta versus Tau, death versus life, and it's all mathematical and and all sort of stuff, you know. Um, there's all these suggestions that are never really explored. And I think maybe, Steph, that's what annoys you about it, that, that there's so many half ideas floating yeah. around that, um, you know. But at the same time, it's not a blockbuster. Um, it's a piece of independent cinema through through circumstance rather than choice maybe. Yeah. But it is independent cinema and, you know, independent cinema is
2: allowed to do that kind of thing. Oh yeah. And they say, i may have for making that decision to go, well, actually I don't have to explain anything. I'll, I'll do as I please. And I say that, that the camera work, when you consider what they're working with and, and the cinematographer on it, is fantastic. Mm-hmm.
1: It's, it's, it's the most beautiful-looking film I think we've covered. Maybe Rosemary's Baby, perhaps, as well.
0: Weirdly, it, it, um, it it's uh, credited with um, influencing years of perfume adverts and <laughs> stuff like that. You know, it's that, that well, floaty dreaminess. Yeah, of, um, it's got
1: that kind of haziness to it, doesn't it? Yeah, you know, right? yeah
0: and that, that kind of thing of um, uh, David Hamilton, you know, gauzy, soft-porn crap yeah. that became abilitous and blightous, or whatever it was, and you know, stuff like that was, you know, it, this is way before any of that. It's, um, you know, it, it was quite a, it was quite, a, quite a, a, a groundbreaking piece of artwork.
1: It's hugely influential, it really is hugely influential, but I'll kind of, at least, I'll ease into my final chapter, which was, is
2: that- Just before you do, I was just gonna say as well, with almost every perfume advert that pops up on my telly, I haven't got a clue what the shit's going on there either, so it's, it's rather <laughs> fitting if they have yeah. influenced them.
1: If, if there's a perfume ad where someone turns yeah. into a crab and, uh, yeah. and, and then Shelley's just disappears. Or you know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the crab by Chanel. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't think that's mm. going to be a big seller if I'm honest. But... Or oh, tuna. Yeah. Mm. It'll, uh... <laughs> it'll smell like Port but I don't think it'd be a great idea. <laughs>
0: The fishing beach of Hastings. Yeah. Oh,
1: no, oh, no! Yeah, that's a terrible, grim smell. Particularly <laughs> essence of angelfish. Particularly when the tide comes out and it's just full of dead sharks. Anyway, <laughs> little local colour. So the the final chapter is. Uh, I thought this was a horror podcast. Well, yes, it is a horror podcast, and this is a horror film, and I am wont to make ridiculous statements on uh, on this pod where I compared Halloween Free to the Holy Bible by the Manic Street Preachers, probably being the greatest uh, uh, great claim. But I am now stating this is the most horrific film that we have covered because wow. all, the other, all the other films we have covered have a nice, nice team re, uh, clean resolution and you can wrap them up in a bow. There's werewolves, there's the devil, there's a demon... This is more than that. Is this a murderous
2: is... French woman with scissors.
1: Yeah, absolutely murder <laughs> French woman with scissors. This is, the universe is a vast and scary place, and there are no answers within it. And there are things in the universe far beyond our understanding and our ability to cope with it. You know, the, the cosmic horror of H.P. Lovecraft. But this does that. Without all the unnecessary racism and metaphors that H.P. Lovecraft favours, in favour of just the idea that you can't know because the world and the universe is unknowable, and that is absolutely truly horrific. But it also does other genuine horror things as well. So the opening scene in the school, like my in my notes, I described it as airless, and it just feels really kind of weird, and the tension is there, and you can almost and what it reminded me of is Dario Argento's Suspiria, which is set again in, a, in a, an academic setting for women. And there's just this real, really weird airless kind of quality to it. And the use of mirrors is interesting as well. Now, going back to my original idea or original conversation about the fairy and the point where landscape shifts and everything else, you know, can we in the talk of shifting between worlds in English mythology. Mirrors are important. And early on, you see Miranda almost solely through mirrors when she's talking to Sarah. There's just reflections. And then when uh, Irma comes back, it's the same as well. You see her through mirrors a lot. There is a sense of other and a sense of, of threat that is really, really kind of tricky to imply without murder French women with scissors or or Satan or whatever, but it does it really, really strongly. And then some of the characters as well, you know, Miss Appleyard looks, well, I don't know, she looks like a huge crow at one point, just black and imposing and there's lots of horror kind of tropes in it, but classical horror tropes and Gothic tropes as well. It, it It has a sense of the Gothic about it despite it not being scary castles in woods and darkness and lightning, instead being in the kind of what I assume is the Australian spring, there's a sense of the gothic massively about it as well. The, it's
0: very Edgar Allan Poe kind of gothic, isn't yeah, it?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, yeah, it's kind of 19th century gothic. It's, it's uh,
0: supernatural turn-of-the-century weirdness.
1: Yeah, there's a weirdness to it. Weirdness is exactly the phrase for it as well. And the girls themselves are horror archetypes. You've got the, you know, you've got the sexy one. You've got the the weird outsider. You've got the uh, fat girls hanging along with the other ones. Yeah. And it follows the archetype as well. That, you know, kind of it's a sexy one who disappears first of all. The one who has this kind of sexual energy about her in the same way that she would in a horror film. So it does that horror trope thing really well. And going back to what I said earlier as well, it does the slasher movie thing. The camera tracks the girls. The camera is the, the hidden viewer. And, you know, that that is what we expect of horror films. We've seen that. We've seen that a hundred times. But it's interesting that this mid-70s costume drama is doing that as effectively as... Uh, as John Carpenter does with Halloween in a couple of years' time. Mm-hmm. So it is a horror film, it's a, it, but it's a horror film about the, the absolute and noble nature of the universe rather than murderous French women or crocodiles or anything else it could have been, you know. And that, I think that is another strength for it as well. And the hysteria when the girls, uh, when Irma visits, yeah, you know, that feels uh, that again. That feels like Suspiria. And then you see but when Sarah, she
0: when she gets attacked. You mean is it? Uh,
1: yeah. Well, when she comes back to the school and the girls all want to know what's going on. Yeah. And, it, and it, the way it's kind of framed and shot it feels like she's been attacked. She is. She's been spoken of, but you know it. It feels quite kinetic. And then it cuts to Sarah being strapped to that board, <laughs> and you know, that feels really gothic and weird. And then Sarah's death is genuinely horrible. You know, body is contorted. It's it, it's a horror film. It just does it very, very subtly. It it never feels the need to push that forward.
0: But it Definitely hor- horrific things happen.
1: Yes, um,
0: and I think you know Sarah's death. Did she jump? Was she did Appleyard push her? Um, because she represented everything that was going wrong for you know for Appleyard's life. Um, the the way Miranda treats her, even though she's absolutely obsessed with Miranda, but Miranda's very patronizing towards her. Oh, you really must come to the, you know, to the to the to the sheep station and stay sometime. It's absolutely divine, you know, um, because she's this orphan who has nothing. She obviously has aspirations to grape. Um, but then her her benefactor just disappears as well you know it's like what what happened there to the guy who, whoever it was that was paying fees why is he paying the fees for her and not the the, the man who's or the boy who's revealed to be her brother
1: yeah albert yeah
0: her, her orphaned brother uh, the, the the different paths their lives have taken um the attack on on irma you know she and i think it's quite interesting that he decided to dress her in a bright red sort mm. of scarlet cloak so you know like like bad people wear,
1: you
0: know. Nuns and Scarlet are always going to be bad nuns, aren't they? It's, yeah. <laughs>
1: um, um Well, it, it's almost like you know, kind of girls were in white, and now she's in red. She, she's become that, a she's she become a woman, her. as the, yes. the
0: supposed, you know, um, and that's why she's being taken away. And and, and, and so there's on.
1: all that talk about that, as well, the doctor says she's fully intact and stuff. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. Know, yeah. I think they all um, assume there's a, a sexual aspect to it. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, And there is an eroticism that goes through it from right from the the buggy ride out to the out to Hanging Rock when um, Miss McCraw is explaining the geology in an almost sort of erotic tones of, you know, how it erupted and became, you know, and and all this sort of stuff. She's, you know, the the Victorian repression and oppression and inside the school and stuff is very, very, very claustrophobic when you've got. As we say earlier, you know, you've got all this emptiness around, um, but here you've got this tiny little Victorian world where all the walls are covered in scores of paintings or pictures, or you know, there's not a surface that isn't hasn't got a, an aspidistra plonked on it or a, or a, or a um, picture of someone's grandparents, you know.
1: Yeah, it's it, it, you know it's uh, it's repression against <laughs> ultimate kind of freedom. In that uh, the landscape is endless, and, yeah,
0: yeah. and which is, you know, ironic, because Australia has become a very open and very free kind of society. You know, um, that's why they all love casual sportswear so much. I guess <laughs> <laughs> rather than dressing appropriately and properly,
1: that's what that's what was lacking in the episode. No one wondering about in a vest,
0: a yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you nice know, swan dry,
2: mate we <laughs> yeah. talking Aussie rules. Um, <laughs> yeah, they I see we've got that, that underlying sexual elements throughout, you know. I mean, when he says she's still intact, it's one of the, the most like, you can feel your skin style, It's the most horrible way yeah. of describing yeah. anything. Yeah. It's really, the violation of it. Is Yeah. It's and just the, the way, and he almost sounds disappointed when he says it. He's always, it is it, a, a horrible, that's what I really sets you on edge and gets you yeah, that it was really not there's, there's,
0: there's, there's, a, there's a suggestion of a, a slight set a slight bit of glee yeah that he, that he you know yeah undertook the examination kind of thing or, yeah but it,
1: it's a it, lack of an answer as well isn't it? because if she had been uh kind of assaulted it gives you a bit more sense to it as, well i think everybody in the film is struggling from the lack of resolution well, it would have been a, it would have been
0: a noose around Albert's neck if she had
1: been, I guess. Oh yes, yeah, absolutely.
0: Not, not, not the, not the posh kid,
2: obviously. Yeah. No. <laughs> um, Mrs. Appley kind okay, of goes back to that that trope that we've seen a lot of times already as that, that sort of wretched old woman. There's always a wretched old woman in these things it who's it was really not nice at all. Um And then we see her. I. I kind of thought the way we were going to go was that she was at the, the heart of everything that was happening, that she kind of had some sort of control because it's everyone that either she dislikes or she has sort of emotions towards that kind of end up going missing or dying or something happens to them. And I, I thought that was going to be a twist, but as it happens, we didn't have any twists anyway. Um, It's all twist. It's all twist and no twist at the same time. (laughs) Um, I've got like this, a problem with a few of the characters, isn't it? There's the one girl who just continually screams, seemingly throughout it all. Who's the one that, that they kind of uh, the boys take the piss out for one of a benefits for being sort of the fat one of the group.
1: Yeah. Any op- any opportunity did she's did got, it. To- it her. yeah.
2: Well,
0: she yeah, it, it. whines the whole time, doesn't she? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and any That's-
2: opportunity she's got to leave out a little scream or a little yelp or anything, she she's the first one to, to do it. She's more than happy to have a little <laughs> a little scream. And then. Um, Okay I've got the name written down but there's the guy who's um with Minnie is he Tom the Irish, oh, Yeah 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 yeah
1: the, yeah. the Irish guy yes. uh, I'm saying Irish very uh, broadly
2: very strange sort of they play him as a bit of a like fucking bozo character like they they really play on his, he's a bit of an idiot and a bit of a fool and he's sort of singing a song the last lyric in it is, "And death is in the sky." Well, Minnie's clearly upset next to him, then he just turns and says, "I love you, Minnie." And I said, well, what, what's, "What's this guy doing? What's he playing at?" Uh, and then the first time you see the oh, water I've got again, frozen, i got frozen. Yeah, you're you're okay on
0: our end. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 sorry, I'm. I didn't. Yeah, it's my internet connection apparently. Oh man,
2: sorry. I
0: might no, need sorry. to edit a bit. But... <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> um, Sorry, um, it seems to be all right now. So, um,
2: sorry, what were you saying? So yeah, he, he sort of he's singing that song, and then the, the final lyric is, "and death is in the skies." While well, Minnie's clearly upset next to him, and then he turns around says, "I love you, Minnie," and gives her a kiss. And you're like, "Well, what, what what's this guy playing? At? Like, he's he's clearly got this upset woman next to him." And then, when we first cut to them two, it kind of feels like confessions of a school janitor or whatever the hell he is like it's it's kind of got this like sex romp feel about it as the two of them undress in the bedroom it was very strange a very weird
1: character i think that's there to show the difference between the girls and the the
2: difference between classes yeah but i I, they just kind of it's the one thing that he overplays i think because everything else is if anything too subtle sometimes for me Whereas that was completely over the top. I say it could have been played by Robin Asquith. Yeah, that much sort of yeah, yeah. He was that subtle. And the, the accent, it's
0: about, you know, it's about as convincing as Sean Connery as at Russian, isn't it? You know, it's
2: well <laughs> obviously I Nicole Kidman in my next way. Right? It's as good as her and, and Tom Cruise doing Irish accents in Far and Away. Oh okay. it was just a, a terrible, terrible Irish accent in Far and Away. So yeah, he he kind of um took me out of, of it a little bit because we've got all this this looming sense of, of weirdness and, and really feeling it there and then this guy just pops up with just this, this weird like, really just clumsy. and I think if, if you cut it out it wouldn't make any
0: difference would it no it wouldn't affect
2: yeah. him in any way he's got no point to exist other than maybe Minnie speaking to him when she's upset so even if you cut right up to him singing this this bizarre song that he's singing which would work okay. if you were singing a bizarre song, but he's singing it in such a comedic style. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it... Neither, neither of
0: those characters have any... Yeah. In, any. Well, there is no outcome, but oh. they don't have any um, effect on the non-outcome. mood
2: or, or, or anything no. in the, the film. The film
1: could be 20 minutes shorter. I think yeah. it could lose 20 minutes and it would make very little difference.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: I might actually make her a bit tighter. Because yeah. As much as I like the factor ebbs away, I've, the ebbing away lasts a bit too long, I think, personally, but but other than that, yeah, I think it's a very good and very unsettling film. And the nature of horror is to unsettle. So that that is why I've picked it. Um you,
2: you say as well it could be short. I I, I think that's true of, of both of our films, because I'll dive into it, to why I think mine should be at, at the end as well. And, and the other
1: thing,
0: the horrific thing is You know when they're they're all having a go at Irma just before she leaves, and and like you say, suddenly it just cuts to Sarah tied up to this thing. It's for her posture. (laughs) Um, I think it's it's, it's, uh, to cure her stooping, which is appalling. (laughs) Is the um, the music teacher's uh, explanation for why she's strapped to the gymnasium wall? You know,
1: yeah.
0: Um, Again, it's that whole Victorian, you know, um, good sound thrashing never never hurt anybody kind of thing.
1: Yeah, that muscular Christianity kind of idea, isn't it? You know, it's uh, and but that was what kind of led to the colonialism, wasn't it? You know, this kind of strong arm, strong mind, what made Britain great, mate. Yeah, absolutely. But,
2: I mean, I don't know if maybe this is is part of the other issue I've got as well. Because if I was Sarah, I'd be begging to be dragged away by a crab in pantaloons. Like I think it's has to be better than staying, but. Uh, Feeling unwanted and unloved and generally mistreated every day. Bring on the crabs. I'm i more than happy to go It's gotta be it's gotta be better than the way she describes the orphanage beforehand. Yeah. <laughs> I, I can't think of any any scenario where they go, you can either live in this orphanage and be tied to a wall and mistreated every single or you can travel through space and time. <laughs> a with with a crab. Time, thanks. <laughs> with <the> crap, yeah. <laughs>
0: Yeah, she's called Miss McCraw as well, isn't she? Yes. Oh, yeah. Nice claw. <laughs>
1: I mean, I, I felt
0: for for a bit then as well.
1: I'm not sure where we were going there, but uh, yeah, that's all right.
2: Sorry, got my got my L's and my R's mixed up,
1: <laughs> Miss McCraw.
2: Yeah. But is it a, a crawfish? Is it he's a that's a, a crabby thing, in a crawfish. Yeah, it's
0: kind uh, of, uh, yeah. Well, it's in SpongeBob, it is. Yeah,
2: he's, he's kind of like a, a crabby prony thing.
1: <laughs> Crawdad. I think we are reading a little too much. <laughs> no, that, little.
2: That's, what, that's what art is, is people reading too much into what someone else did. Yeah.
1: Well, <laughs> you yes. I think you know, he okay. meant
2: by this line. I think he, he just meant what he wrote. Like, I don't...
1: Yeah. Yeah, well, uh, as uh, as you know, Steph, recently the discussion we've had about the Janet Jackson album, you know, it's uh, art is always there for uh, interpretation, I suppose.
2: So. Mm, you know how I interpreted
1: that album. <laughs> <laughs> that was a piece of crap. <laughs> Uh, so, Steph, we uh, we lead into your film now then. So we've gone from on a horror podcast, a uh, costume drama, into a thriller. Yeah, well,
2: listen, I, I argue that a thriller doesn't really exist. A thriller is just a subgenre of horror anyway, if you ask me. So I will say as well, while we're talking, Janet Jackson, at least she didn't put any bloody panpipes on our album. So one <laughs> <No. to> me. <laughs> panpipes Disco. Hey, you should try <laughs> Hastings Town Centre. <laughs> <laughs> So my film um, is about a young woman and her husband overcoming the death of their son by taking a yachting trip. And wouldn't you know it, there just happens to be someone in need of rescue who, who might not be as friendly as he first seems. Uh, spoiler, he's, he's a bit murdery. He isn't very friendly at all. Um, <laughs> stabby. He's a, he's a bit stabby and a bit killy and a bit a bit unhinged. Um, my film's dead calm.
0: Alone. A sea of endless calm it was easy to imagine they were the only two people on earth but into their perfect world there came a stranger
1: stand up I'm trying to take her across the pacific on your own no there were six of us yeah this died 10 days ago i'm going on board her He's fast asleep. He won't even know. Him. God, you're pretty.
2: What about those people, huh? There wasn't any food poisoning. What's there? No way! The goes solid. You think I'm making this up? No, I don't. You sound so much like the Ray.
0: It's scary. Dead Calm: A Voyage Into
2: Fear. From the makers of The Road Warrior and Mad Max. So I'm going to kick off. I've I've got my chapters I'm going to do them completely in different order to the way I've got them set out and the way that I've written them. So I'll, we'll be jumping all over the place, left, right and centre. But just to have the complete contrast with your film, Gav, I'm going to go with something that uh, my old teacher told me, which is always kiss. And by kiss, it was keep it simple, stupid. The joy of this film is in its simplicity. There doesn't need to be over the top. There's nothing crazy and wild and out there. It's something that you can completely... Relate to in some sense, not in the sense of I've ever had my own boat disappeared into the sunset with my husband and picked up a murderous man, but it's just that fight for survival. It's that growing up. It's what would you do? How far would you go to save yourself and a loved one? And that's really what it's about. There is more depth, there is more things, but even if you don't look into those, we've got a nice, simple easy structure that's all about lack of control and fear of strangers and they're perhaps two of the biggest fears that everybody has at some point in their life at some point in your life there's somebody that you feel a bit uneasy about this guy there's something a bit up, he's a bit odd, I feel uncomfortable and just that lack of control and that's exactly the situation that we drop it in so you don't need crabs in pantaloons even though Hanging Rock didn't actually have one in the film in the end (laughs) We don't need to question whether it's aliens or forces or something that's older than the Earth itself. We know exactly what it is in this case. case, It's a bit of a mad guy and a bit of a bad situation. I think the way they set it up is, is fantastic. We've kind of got two situations running simultaneously because we've got Nicole Kidman fighting the guy trapped on a boat, fighting for a... Well, we say fighting for a life... Possibly even worse than that, it, it's not a great, we don't really know what his intentions are, we do know that he's killed a lot of people before, didn't exactly treat them great and isn't a nice guy at all. But then we've got Sam Neill as well who's stuck on this boat fighting with nature and fighting with uh the machines essentially using all his knowledge as a former Navy whatever the hell he was. I mean, I'm not the guy to get into anything to do with with Navy, Army or Air or, or Forces. I, I'm really not that guy. But we know that his background is within that. Well, the first time we meet him, he's in uniform coming in from the Navy, coming in from the on the train and trying to use everything within his power and his knowledge to save his own life and then get to his wife to try and save her. What we get is a real good dynamic switch halfway through that. We, by When we go into this, and I'm, I'm going to cross over a few times between my chapters because, you know me, I can never keep things on the straight and narrow. Rather, rather, rather ironically that I'm the one going, this is nice and structured and straight, and yours was all over the place, and I'm the one that's going to weave in and out the different things and go all over the place. We see that dynamic switch in as much as Sam Neil going into this is the very much the one in charge. I think it was quite clever that um, this was a, a book originally, mm-hmm. and I think in the book, um, his wife is, is, in, is in mid to late 30s, and so is he. And what they've done with this is make her a lot younger. And we kind of feel going into the, that, that's the way their relationship works as well, where he's very much the one in charge, and he's the one who, who controls and he looks after her. And we get a complete switch. We really get a character growth and he's very much the one in danger and she's the one in charge by the end of the film. But I'll delve into that later on. But for me, and it's, it's just that pure simplicity that you can buy into of, this is our situation. This is what we're doing. We know what we've got to do to think, to, to, but how do we get there? How do we get safe? And how do they save each other? And can they? So a short chapter for me to start off, because it has to be. Because if I do any longer, it's not going to be simple anymore.
1: <laughs> There's a genuine sense of dilemma, though, isn't there? You have kind of. Yes. I've seen, I've seen the film a number of times. I know exactly what happens. But even re watching it again now is a bit like, oh God, how do they get out of this? And I know exactly how to get out of it because I've seen it. But it, it, you do always have that sense of that. And I think it's, it's quite stripped back and the landscape. You know, this e- endless uh, sea is allows it to be so stripped back because there can't be other people involved. There's the two people on their boat and the Samuel stuck on the Orpheus, and that's it.
2: Well, we've uh, already done the one possibly, you know, over the, the top coincidence. They've bumped into someone in the middle of God's nowhere, they're in the middle of the Pacific. The chances of them bumping into anyone was slim. So I think if it comes to the point where they bumped into someone else to rescue them, we're getting to the point of it being completely implausible. If it had been someone, some white knight they were expecting to ride in and, and rescue them, you would have gone, well, this is absolutely bloody ridiculous. And this isn't dead calm. This is fast and the furious or whatever you want to bloody completely over the top nonsense. So we know by getting that one out of the way first, that in, the, in this isolation, this miles around nothing else, they've bumped into someone. The chances are that's not going to happen again. So it's on you to you you two have got to get yourself out of this.
1: Yeah, it's survival horror, isn't it? You yeah. know, it's it's very much that kind of uh, feel to it. You know, it 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 throws all the genres together. The survival horror, but it, it's a slasher as well, isn't it? You know, it's uh, even though you know who the killer is from the start.
2: Yeah, and that, that's the thing. You sort of and and quite often in, in slashes, you know, you do especially after. Slasher sequels that, that, Dave, that we know exactly who's who's doing the killing. Yeah. Well, the, the interesting thing is it, it's kind of a slasher with no murders, because the murders that we know have already happened; they're already done. Yeah. We, we we kind of find them out in the in the body parts that are floating around the office, but we, we, we never see a murder. We never see anybody get killed.
1: But well, that's very horror movie. Yes, well, we know, do. Right. Yeah. We do. at The end.
2: Yes. Yeah. Yeah. By I, I, sorry, killed by Billy Zane. Then. We, yes, we, we, we see <laughs> a couple better of better. deaths. Uh, We see a few deaths, which I'll I'll come on to later on as well, because it, it, but yeah, the, the, the antagonist in this never, we never see him kill anybody. We know that he's killed people because when they go to the boat, there's there's bits of limbs floating around everywhere and a few heads and whatever, but yeah, we never actually see him kill anyone. I think think that, that, that
0: shift for Kidman, for her character as well um, is, is like you say, it's, it's brilliant. You know, she goes from, from being the sort of victim decoration to, to the absolute hero. You know, she's the one, that's, even though the, you know, the men are fighting over the poor little poor little woman kind of thing. Yeah. But she's the one who fights off Huey. She's the one who turns the boat around. She's got just as, the same sailing skills as, you know, her, her husband, who's 20 years in the Navy, who rather patronisingly says to her, you know, at one point, you know, sort of how do you know what's going on? It's like, well, that in 20 years in the Navy. Yeah. <laughs> it's really quite battle And then he rose off to be in utter jeopardy. Yeah. Um, while it, she has to has to she has to turn around and save him. You know, it's but, um, I'll
2: leave her hand out to grab him up and all that sort of thing. It's br- it's a brilliant bit of gender yeah. reversal. I and, and not I, I'll Dave because uh, this is I like doing this with my chapters. I'm gonna blur the lines because my second chapter is called It Should Never Be About Me, which is what Nicole Kidman said about our character acting. And like my my biggest chapter is her. She's absolutely superb. And they say it's that switch, not just yes. with gender as well, but with our age thing, where yeah. they really play on the fact they say that she, she, she hands down the best thing. thing in the movie, absolutely. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, he, he's this naval officer who, who's a fool you know, he's almost double her age. And and he very much acts that way towards her, and she's almost, you know, she she's very troubled. She's still dealing with the trauma of of losing her child, and so mentally, we we see the which is very much a a thing of the the eighties and nineties, whereby weak characters are taking some sort of medication for mental illness. Like they always throw, like they throw that one in there. There's always if you're taking tablets for mental illness at those times, it was generally because that character was flawed we um, whereas obviously now we're, we're much more at least I'd like to think as a, someone who talks about mental health quite a lot we're a bit more accepting of that now and we kind of understand things a little bit better but she's always played as this vulnerable character she, she's always she, she's 22 years old but we really get that growth in her we really watch her she goes through this sort of rite of passage in the most horrible and brutal of ways and then sort of puts her own body on the line as well like with Billy's Zane to try and get back to her husband, who is the one who has put them in this danger completely by deciding to piss off back to this boat, because I want to know what's really going on. Well, why don't you just like concentrate on keeping you two safe <laughs> and then you can go back and have a look what's going on. But it's this devil-may-care attitude that, that almost kills them
1: both. But is he not doing what he would do in his job? He's a naval officer. There's a situation at sea. He has to take control of it because he's in charge. That's that's why he's a naval officer. I'm, I'm not sure why. He...
0: Why couldn't he just take the starrison over to the Orpheus? It's obviously Billy Zane. Uh, Huey, is is um, is under some stress and is obviously very um, distraught and troubled um, and confused and you know not quite not every, not everything's adding up somehow. Oh. Uh, Twenty years at sea, darling. That's how I know.
2: Yeah, um, he's got that kind why of he bravado. Just
0: bloody Saracen around and get get it near the, the the Orpheus? Why does he have to row over to it? You know, half a mile
2: away. It's a- there, there's kind of that bravado about it. Like you, you stay here and do do what you need, and I'll go back and I'll I'll sort this out.
0: I'll leave my young, vulnerable wife with a lunatic.
2: Yeah, who's just lost her son and yeah. is clearly not in the best of places anyway. And yeah, despite all his experience and all his background and everything that he should be doing, she's the one who rescues them. It's absolutely fantastic. I talk a lot on this about um, growth of character. I think that's what makes a good film is if all is if the characters can grow. But what we get in this is not just her character growth but we really start to see the flaws in him who seems to be in control of everything and in charge. I mean, even from that first scene in the hospital, which is, is brutally dark and he's having that conversation and he needs to know about the child and exactly what happened. And he, you know, he's questioning the doctor. And even in that scenario, it feels like he's the one in charge, not the doctor when the doctor says, you don't need to know. No, I, I need to, know. I want to know this. Yeah. Did he die instantly? Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, and what we see is that very quickly he spirals and unravels and loses control of everything, and she actually steps into there and again, his, you know, his, his, his,
0: his disdain for what he finds on the Orpheus as well, when the videos come up and his the horror yeah. on his face when the videos start playing, all this sort of thing you know he's, he is obviously so straight um, yeah. that the whole idea when reading the advert of you know broad-minded. <laughs> sort of room. With, a, with a raised eyebrow kind of thing you know it's um uh you can tell he he instantly dislikes he, he instantly dislikes the whole premise of the office <laughs> that, that, that you know sort of that it it's a black boat as well isn't it it's black versus the white of the saracen you know but this is a dark evil place kind of thing and, and he, he makes no bones about his disgust
1: And it's quite interesting you're saying about the kind of mental health. Her grief is what makes her strong, almost. You know, she she is absolutely riddled with grief, but then that makes her survivor. Yeah, grief and guilt. Yeah, and it it makes her a survivor. It makes her a stronger survivor than anyone else in the in the film. You know, and what I also like about the performance, it's. Yeah, you know, I know it's her last film before she went to Hollywood, but it's very much not a Hollywood performance in the way she looks, in the way she acts. Everything about it is not very really Hollywood, and she would lose all that. And I'm a I'm a big Nicole Kidman fan in certain films, but I think this is one of her last truly great performances before well, she becomes a bit generic Hollywood.
2: Uh, ironic, this was the film that Tom Cruise seen that say uh, that put them onto her for Days of Thunder*. So apparently Tom Tom Cruise watched this and said, "I want to," and little did we know exactly what that meant. And that the, was the, the start of it all unraveling for her a little bit. Um, was that after he consulted the Grand Theatin, or? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah. If you, you believe it, they were all all his wives were handpicked by somebody. Um, <laughs> right. But as it as a big mental health advocate as well, I, I think it's quite progressive on that front, where we do see that actually these mental health struggles, well th- this is just par for the course, because she's already gone through the struggles, she's already been into the darkness so this is just another thing that you're throwing at her, and so she literally as I say, uses everything she possibly can to get through this, because she's done it, she's been there, and obviously what, even a medication that she's using to help her sleep at night it literally is the thing that that subdues him and tries to, tries to stop him. She's absolutely fantastic. It, it's a real great film where any other actress who wasn't quite as good, maybe couldn't have carried it in the way that she did. You've got, I say three people, but essentially for a lot of the time, it's the two of them. It's the chemistry between her and Billy Zane that, that really makes it. And he, he's a little bit over the top sometimes. He's a little bit. Uh, oh yeah,
1: he's moustache twirling, isn't he? You know, if you well, he would be totally tied to the weird. rail
2: track. <laughs> yeah, he, he's not quite dialed up to Nicolas Cage levels, but no. there's times where you think he might get there. He started. He, he's sort of on that low rev just before he gets
1: there. So it's Nicolas Cage light at times. Isn't yeah. it? you know, it's uh, it, it's got that kind of feel to. Well, it's I not
0: his family that has been kidnapped, is it? It's uh, you know, like Nicolas Cage. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> It's always his family that gets kidnapped and he has to go on and,
2: on the spree. But yeah, sorry. That's
1: uh, <laughs> yeah. It's, well, it's a like, very non-Hollywood film though, isn't it? You know? Yeah, and it,
2: it, the, the the ending that is then quite Hollywood was was tacked on and I don't like it. Yes. But, uh, if it had ended as it was meant to end with her dragging him out of the sea and onto the ship whilst Billy Zane's been cut loose in this dinghy at the back, I think that was that was the perfect ending for not just for the film, but for Nicole Kidman's character. Yeah. And then... I think if they, if they had mirrored, because you know, there's that shot when
0: Sam Neill takes a takes a leap at the boat and sort of chins himself it. on the railing yeah. <laughs> um, and gets cut up by the propeller and then it sort of pans back and you just see the Saracen yeah. sailing away from the Orpheus and he's in the middle, you know. And if they had mirrored that shot with Zane on the, on the raft
2: as yeah. the as the Saracen disappears into the, into the distance again, it would have been, you yeah. um, know. It, it would have been, the. instead we get that, that kind of tacked on ending that, that the executives insisted on because. Yeah. Some, I'm not I sure mean, you can, can you aim a flare that accurately? Because I mean, he was pretty close to his wife.
0: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that's quite, he's and taking quite a risk there, it,
2: isn't it? He's not even aiming at Billy aim. He's aiming at a shadow of Billy aim because he's not 100% exactly where he is. But he hits him straight in the mouth, which is a, a fantastic yeah. shot. 20 years at sea, darling. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it was the American studio, wasn't <laughs> it, that wanted, <laughs> <laughs> wanted that to be added to yeah, it? Because <laughs> it needed that sense of resolution. You, you don't need resolution, as we've proven.
2: But this was, that would have been the perfect dickhead ending for it, been spoiled it if he'd just gone 20 years of sea, darling. How that. did you know you wouldn't hit me?
1: When yeah, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so
2: just no under-
1: so tie, you know. <laughs> <laughs> undermines the previous hour of the film as well, doesn't it? Really?
2: Yeah, with because- Nicole Kidman's had this massive growth and is now this incredibly strong, independent woman. She's gone f- sort of into womanhood almost on that boat trip, and then they had to have the the, the white male savior at the end, and you're like. Oh, piss off like, we didn't need that no. he spilt the breakfast as well he's ruined breakfast <laughs> i don't where know why she like laid... flowers to put on the breakfast yeah where have they come from it's in, new... <laughs> in the middle of the pacific ocean he's got the and I, i'm not sure anyone lies with their eyes shut while their has been shampoos is for 10 minutes and never once considers but recognizing recollises... well, that, that's, that's, that's a, that's a very big
0: point though i think that 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 whole scene—it's an act of atonement for him, you know, for for yeah. putting her through that by his stupid kind of um, uh, arrogance to go over to the Orpheus, you know, uh, and all that sort of thing. So it's it's atonement and and you know um, and thanks, isn't it? So for 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 his life, kind of thing, okay. you
2: know. All, all it's quite, a, quite a religious kind of thing, almost. You know, it, maybe I'm ruled more by my belly than Nicole is, but if someone's returning to me with breakfast and coffee. I'm opening my eyes at least to have a look where my where my breakfast is. I don't <laughs> I, I'm not just gonna lie there for 10 minutes with my eyes still shut. Just say, why is he shampooing my ear again? Is a bacon roll on your thing, yeah? I, <laughs> <laughs> I have two eggs, please. Yeah. But this is what happens as we know when you let the public get involved in things. Once the public is involved, it ruins everything. I've I've I won't go on a tangent ranting about Coldplay again, Gav. But this <laughs> is what happens when you let the public decide things.
1: We'll we'll have one episode where we don't discuss Die Hard, Scooby Doo, or Coldplay. We will have one, but uh...
2: yeah, it's, it's the first one that has gone there's, got, there's got no Scooby. It's no Scooby Doo like in the slightest. I don't think any of this, which is mostly disappointing for me. I've enjoyed our Scooby Doo chat.
1: Oh, that's no, all right. I'm going to mention it. In the, maybe uh, Pick
2: canning uh, Rock could have done with more Scooby Doo. <laughs> Who is it? <laughs> well, if they, if they found the girls in an abandoned fairground and <laughs> pulled off the mask, it was
1: Mrs. McCraw all along. <laughs> she was the crab ghost.
2: <laughs> it's pulled off a mask and there's a crab in pantaloons underneath. <laughs> um, my next chapter is called uh, "Nice One, Philip," because uh, it's directed by Philip Nice. And the directing on it is absolutely fantastic. I think what it does is it's got this really good thing of keeping the tension there, but then easing off in the right way. It kind of it's the accelerator and the break at the right time, so that tension never fully dies off, but it's also not always di- dialed up to eleven because we've talked about you sometimes you sort of need time to breathe yourself. And what he does in that is we've got these sort of, perhaps, perhaps quite fittingly for a film set at sea, we've got these waves where it sort of peaks and troughs between the, the tension and things going on and where it dies down and we cut back and forth between the two of them. But that tension is always there. And it's it's very quickly paced as well. It it, it doesn't really waste a second doing anything. There's always something happening. Everything is vital to what's going to come in the future there's not anything we're excluding the final scene that we don't need at all there's nothing where you think well did that really need to be there i, it, I think it's absolutely excellent it gets it gets excellent performances out of everyone it's a bit easier to get excellent performances when you've got three pretty big actors i know they weren't particularly big actors at the time they, they all had their big breaks from year on in whether it be through this film or through things they had done before but the performances are good. Even Billy Zane's slightly over-the-top swivel-eyed loon that he does sometimes, it is pretty good. But as well... and But he is a swivel-eyed loon, isn't he? So Yeah, I, and I yeah. suppose that's the point. He's just murdered everyone who was on his boat because he thought that they might have been after him. So yeah. maybe, maybe he gets it just right of playing a bit of a swivel-eyed loon. <laughs> um and it it doesn't, for want of a better phrase, it doesn't fuck about. Like from the time we start this film, it's it to a hundred. It, it goes pedal to the metal, and it, it it takes us on a rise. There's absolutely nothing.
1: It it's super taut, isn't it? You know, like yeah, it, that, it, it, that's it, a
2: great it, way it, of describing it. Absolutely you know,
1: great way it, of describing it. it. it well, it's, just, almost, it's
2: almost Hitchcockian.
1: Hitchcock yeah,
0: and, and that you know everything's very lean. Everything's very focused. Everything you know. Uh, there's there's quick cuts and edits and all that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and but it's the, what the, the, it was originally Orson Welles, wasn't it, was trying to do
2: it. And, yeah. Well, Orson Welles had apparently made a, a complete hash of it. He had tried yeah. to film this. And there was more characters originally as well. I think there was another two or three characters in there, yeah. Um, yeah. including yeah. Um, his wife. His wife turns up in it. So I, I don't really, I've not read the book, but I don't know how that dynamic then works.
1: There's less death in it as well. There's four characters on the boat, but they don't die. Well,
2: I, I'm, I'm all for the, the extra death. I'm all for Sam Neill swimming through body parts. Um, They also do a good job of, because it, it's so isolated, we see those shots and, and of how oh, there's nobody else around. But it's also done through the sound of it. Like, the only music we really get is is through Billy Zane's radio, cassette player, whatever he's got. It's it's in there. It. Yeah. yeah. And then we've got those sort of creaks and groans of the boat, and uh, as the the sails swinging round and this sort of thing, we really get the sense of oh, there's nobody else there because we hear every little thing that. That, that music
1: is be. terrible, though, isn't it? Yeah, you know, I'm not sure what it does in it. I don't think, fi- I don't think it brings anything to it.
0: You know what? When 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 that when that that music, that scene where he's dancing on the boat, and I looked at it up. It's, it's, it's a song called "Who Stole the." isopropyl alcohol um, (laughs) by some horrible singer songwriter called tim o'connor and um he but that that song when he's he's dancing kidman sort of wakes up after she's been knocked out it's what jack johnson would be
2: like isn't it in a in a a mid-ocean crisis (laughs) you know (laughs) i I think that's kind of what it does in the all this stuff is going on. There's loads of people dead. He's just abandoned her husband at sea for him to die. He's probably going to end up killing her at some point as well. And he's having a jolly old fucking time. And I think that's what it sets up. Is this guy's mad? Like this guy is 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 probably nuts in the old family. He's he's won. He's been he's been saved. Yeah, and he's, uh, he's getting away scot-free, as far as he can see. So I, I actually think it, it they do uh, and doesn't he do um the lion sleeps tonight, as well. I think also he sings yes. along to at some point. Yeah, that's think, that's, that's is, among their CDs, isn't it? Um, yeah.
0: Go, What's this? That's a rubbish. This is rubbish. Well, yeah. Okay, this will do,
2: and then this will yeah. do. When he picks the, the this sort of madcap, childlike almost song, "The Lion Sleeps Tonight," so which shows just how an the guy is. I think that's what it does really well. is how much joy he's taking in this situation. Well, <laughs> it a role to be invented, wasn't it? Oh God! I, if, if he was playing Coldplay, I would have begged him to off me there and then. Just cut me, chuck me in the dinghy and cut the rope. Why don't I? would set him flares I'll off put my the flare in my own mouth.
1: Yeah. No. <laughs> just, just know, American Psycho was set in the nine uh, in the two thousands. Patrick Bateman would be talking about uh, Coldplay rather than uh, Phil Collins, oh, like God. he does in the book. <laughs>
2: I I I don't know. Again, so I I think maybe he might go sort of. Flaming lips might uh, might have a call in this sort of, but more modern flaming lips, not not the oldest. Good flaming lips, yeah. I think Coldplay would have been too dour and depressing for him. As I as I keep saying, Coldplay are just radioed without the soul
1: or the talent. They just. I don't know why we've managed to fold up this. Uh...
2: What, a, what a radio hit now, then. <laughs> I'm okay. not a big fan of Radiohead either, if I'm honest. There's, there's like two or three songs that I can get along with, and then I I bail, which upsets a lot of people that I talk to, but there we go.
1: <laughs> Me included. For...
2: yeah, <laughs> But yeah, I don't know. I, I think uh, Philip Noyce does an, an absolutely fantastic job of directing I think was what I was saying. <laughs> it was, it was, his, first, it was his first big movie, wasn't it? Yeah, and he again went on to, to big. Th- I mean, almost everyone connected to this film went on to something bigger and better, which is, is quite. Mm. Uh, again, whether it was because of this or because of, of work they'd done before, which uh, a few of them have claimed, I, it it speaks volumes that.
1: I don't think, think this film volume. hurt, did it? You know, I know no. Sam Neill had done other stuff at this point, but I don't think this film hurts his uh, reputation at all, does it? No, no.
2: not at all, and. Um, like I say everything just seemed to to come together at the right time. And then obviously we've got Terry A's writing out and the Mad Max films as well. So the, you know the, he's really if you're talking about things in, in Australian cinema, you know, Mad Max is it's quite high up there. So um yeah, there, there's a lot of a lot of chops amongst them anyway. But like I say the fact that they all went on to bigger things shows that how important this was for them.
1: I think, you know, Philip Noyce as well is the king of the really well organized thriller for me. You know, he uh, he did uh, Patriot Games, which isn't great, but he did Clear and Present Danger, which I think is a great film.
0: Much, but yeah, this is, yeah.
1: Yeah, you mm. know, and he does that kind of very tight, very taut economic storytelling very well. Not, not massively visual sometimes, but, you know, he's. He's good at telling a story in a very effective manner.
0: I think. I think again. Dead calm is beautifully shot, isn't it? It's you know, uh, but, it's it's quite glorious, crisp colour, and you know, um, um, yeah,
1: the contrast of like you know the black boat against the blue sea, the white boat against the blue sea. Yeah, do it. Yeah. It's very sharply done, isn't it? It's the cowboy,
2: white hat, black hat. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I would say that there's not a hell of a lot of subtlety in it. <laughs> In in this film, that's exactly what you want. Again, like I, I'll I'll move on to uh to my final chapter and and add it into that. Uh, my final chapter is called uh, "Never Work with Kids and Dogs," and again, from I like essentially it's the second scene, but from the very start, there's no sentimentality in this film at all. But we start very quickly with a child dying in a car crash, which they don't just that it would have been easy who have just gone the child's death. But we, we see the child going through the window. And it's a scene that I watched this, and this, this again, this is becoming my catchphrase as well. I watched this film much too young the first time that I watched it. <laughs> but that's a scene that's always stuck with me, the sort of singing of the of Incy Wincy Spy, and then the child literally being catapulted through the, the windscreen sort of horizontally, like flying through the air like a javelin. And then we find out that, that he's died and then we get the, the gruesome details of, well, he didn't die instantly, actually, which is what he'd been told. He, he was there for about 20. We don't think he would have suffered, but he was alive for 20 minutes before he died. And your, your wife, I think he does say as well, though, that uh, with the wife, that there's a lot of facial damage and then they cut the Nicole Kidman looking absolutely beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> but she's got some bandages and a little bit of blood on her. <laughs> like, how, how good did she look before? Like, this <laughs> <laughs> um and yeah like that that stuck with me from, because it is sort of very brutal and very jarring at the start that there's no letting you in lightly you know dip your toe in the water's fine you're you, you diving straight into this film there's a dog that gets harpooned halfway through like their they, pet Ben. Who, you, you could argue that maybe Ben deserved it for bringing the key back.
1: Yeah, well, uh, a <laughs>
2: treacherous mutt. Yes. <laughs> I mean, he's very quick to, to swap sides, is is Ben, as yeah. well as being slightly... He starts barking when she's trying to assemble the shotgun. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah.
2: Why is it disassembled anyway? <laughs> That's a good point. I would never thought of that one. Um, but yeah, he, he very much quickly switches seemingly to, to being Huey's dog. He takes a like into it. Here we, here we, here we, she's got the shotgun again. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So yeah, maybe Ben deserved it. Maybe it wasn't an accident after all. (laughs) And then obviously we've got the, um, I'll use the term sex scene. Um, Obviously it opens up a much bigger discussion that's much bigger than this podcast. But when you add it all together, it's quite a nasty,
1: spiteful film. Really, Is it, It's yeah. an exploitation movie, isn't it? You yeah, know, it's. Uh... But it
2: managed to stay really light and really fun. It's like popcorn for it. Well,
0: I think again, going back to the hair washing scene um, before Billy Zane turns up. But again, I think that's there's and also an act an act of absolution going on there that he's um, uh, um, he possibly doesn't know what happened, but he probably suspects what she had to what she yeah. had to do. And he's saying it's okay. I don't mind. Yeah. It's you know, it's yeah. it's all good. We're all clean. We're all everything's washed away. Every everything, all the guilt, all the pain, all the whatever is gone now. Let's.
2: I'd love some lovely fresh cut flowers in our coffee. And and essentially, she she does it for him because of more than fighting for her survival, her yeah. only interest seems to be in getting him back. Yeah, well, she's lost her son. She's she, she's you know, not she, going to lose her husband. Lose her point. husband as well. That would be pretty careless, wouldn't it? But I think what we get is if in the wrong hands This film could have been such a a horrible film to watch Gav, a a favourite of yours I know If this had been Eli Roth early on in his career I'd grabbed a hold of this film It would have been a very different film Without having to change hardly any of the script
1: it would have been unwatchable for me, I feel I roffed it, because it would have been voyeuristic and leering And
2: and, and uh, that's exactly it. Without having to change the script or uh, uh, the plot, the script or any of it, just by slightly changing the angle that you look at it from, it could have been a quite disgusting, horrible film. But it manages to say really Quite a light film, almost, which is bizarre when you think about it. It's such an enjoyable watch, and a film that I've watched, you know, a few times. You said, you know, if it was on, you go, oh yeah, let's put this on and have a relaxing Saturday night with a few drinks and watch this, because of the way that it's done and the way that it's handled. But it, it, there's no sentimentality in it from the start. It, anything could happen. I think when you kill the the character's child in the first. Three minutes of a film, you know that this could go anyway. And I think that's what, what sets it up really well.
1: Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, it's Noyce's strength as a storyteller, isn't it? That's what Noyce's strength is. He is a teller mm. of stories and mm. he doesn't have a particularly strong orthorial eye because he's done films or which all feel very different, but where he's very good at portraying a story. Somebody who has a, a different kind of orthorial eye would have turned her into something far more exploitative than there is.
2: Yeah. It, 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 and credit as well for being able to film in the way that they filmed, because I can't imagine it's easy to film a film primarily set on, a, on small boats. The, 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 out close is when you think of how much equipment you need and the way you need to film it. I know most people try to avoid anything that's got scenes on a boat on it unless it's these big, massive ships. To set um, a whole I'm, film on this tiny board must have been... <laughs>
1: it, I imagine a lot of it was done in the tank, you Yeah, but I mean... the but the,
0: the, the shot where he's fighting for, for air and stuff, you know, when he's yeah. trapped in the in the thing and, and finds the pipe and all that sort of stuff, blows out the cockroaches. <laughs> if I hadn't had 20 years at sea, one of those cockroaches would have gone down <laughs> my neck, without a doubt. Yeah.
2: How did you know this? 20 years at sea. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but even sort of using those techniques, and you know that some of it will have been sorted on sets and in studio, but you, to shoot like that on a ship is one of the things that you, know. you believe. You absolutely yeah. believe. Oh, yeah. yeah.
0: It's super. The, the jeopardy of, of the whole thing, don't
2: you? Yeah, it's it fantastically done. And I know that it's something that, that people tend to shy away from. You don't really get many films. So it does a fantastic job of it. Um, yeah. And I think that's all my chapters, just other than it's a bloody good, enjoyable film. And you know, for me, that's the biggest thing. You can give me as much of anything as you want to give to tell me that a film is great, but it's got to be enjoyable. And by God, this is an enjoyable film
1: for me. So we've discussed those two and we've managed not to uh, discuss a horror film, despite this being a horror podcast, despite this argument, both our films are (laughs) horror. But
2: Thrillers horrible. Yeah, They both have Thrill- horrible qualities. <laughs> thrillers uh, don't exist, right? I, I've got this theory. I, I'm not sure if we do. Thrillers are just what they call horror films, Then they want people to take them seriously. So when you make a horror film, and you think, oh, people, horror films are kind of looked down upon by everyone don't worry, we'll just call it a thriller and we'll add an extra little bit in. Yeah, and it's I awesome. it's a psychological thriller. Yeah, psychological yeah. thriller. Yeah, horror film. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what it is. It's a horror film. Do, so, do lots of people get murdered by a person? Yes, yeah, it's a horror film.
1: So I think there are well. a couple of other films that we could have discussed, uh, I suppose. Uh, going to Andy's homeland, you've got Peter Jackson's early films, uh, Bad Taste and... Uh, the other one, which is completely passed my mind, uh, is it, uh, make
2: the feebles or um...
1: brain dead. Yeah, brain dead so yeah. and bad taste. I don't which know if you are...
2: could include the frighteners because Peter Jackson is is obviously a key one. Probably of
1: course, yeah. The Frighten- frighteners is yeah. a great yeah. film.
2: I don't know whether you could claim it as a as an Antipodean aura, because almost everything else about it is American. Yeah, uh,
0: yeah. I think you, I think you're pushing it as an Antipodean. <laughs> um, although I think it
1: was shot in New Zealand. I think um, Jackson actually shot it in New Zealand. Um, well, so there we go. We'll play we'll that one. <laughs> well, you know, kind of, we both picked different films to begin with, didn't we, uh, Steph? You know, I picked Razorback, great uh, exploitative uh, creature feature, and you went for a slightly more uh, recent one in The Loved Ones, which I watched. Uh, and uh, despite my hatred of gore, I thought it was very good. It's a painfully unsettling film, but... Uh...
2: Yeah, that that's one that... that... You sort of almost sat on the edge of your seat, and you a very uncomfortable seat as well. I might was watching The Loved Ones, and there's some, some very questionable relationships in that one as well. Um, I, I love The Loved Ones, I think it's absolutely great. It, it's not like many other films, no. so I, I came very close to picking that. And we've, I, as you know, we've set out a few genres and sub genres and things in the future, and so I'm hoping I can use that one later on as well because it's an interesting one to talk about, if nothing else.
1: And there's another Australian uh, film that I'm going to use in when we discuss eco-horror, The Long Weekend, which I saw again. I was far too young to watch that film. And it's a hugely unsettling film about nature turning on uh, two young backpackers in the outback. That's a kind of hugely exploitative film. but. really kind of scary and then I suppose you've got your bigger Australian horror films in that Wolf Creek which I don't like at all that's a mean-spirited horrible film. Uh, it's a very
0: cynical movie isn't it? Yeah. The whole, the whole thing of it is is just um, you know it is just right let's kill people in horrible ways and, and, make, and make people go Ugh! you know it's you're at the cinema you want to watch the screen not look away from it.
2: He's a, he's a very um, horrific Mick Dundee, I think, that it's, character. Oh, to, it, if, if Mick Dundee's life had gone another way, he would have <laughs> become Mick in that film. It, it's, it is quite a, a horror. I remember watching it when it first came out, and it's one of those films where I, I think I'd watched it like twice at the time, and I've not watched it since. I probably will go back having discussed this, because I I, I want to see it again and see what if my memory of what it is holds it, up.
1: It's just horribly mean-spirited, uh, my take on it. You know, it, it's uh, it's not a film I like at all. It's that and Martyrs are two films. If you said to me, you have to watch again, I'd just be, no, no, thank you.
2: Martyrs is the is the film I've watched that I enjoyed. At least everyone raved about Martyrs and I watched it. This is the bleakest thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> no matter what happens in my life, nothing will ever stoop lower the martyrs, uh, is it, is there anything, I've got a, a couple more here, Andy, but is there anything else that uh, you'd throw in uh, the Australian Well, world? I think,
0: I think Razorback would have been a good one um, yeah. to have discussed um, because of where it sits in sort of Australian culture, that it's a giant pig that carries off a, a, a child and eats it. Yes. Um, which, um, you know, it was only a few years after the Azaria Chamberlain thing, where she got take, supposedly taken away by a dingo yeah, you know, the, the in Razorback, the the grandfather gets accused of yeah. murdering a child, but then acquitted. You know, the Chamberlains got accused of murdering their own child, but got or got acquitted and all sort of things. So it had echoes of of, of real quite, life, quite a, a major um, real life event in, in and thing. Um, New Zealand is is harder, I think, on, on in terms of horror. You've got. Something like Black Sheep, which is... I've got Black Sheep on my list. <laughs> a, a lot a lot of New Zealand cinema is very tongue-in-cheek anyway. Yeah. Um, you know, zombie sheep. Um, <laughs> turning people into zombies. Um, I've
1: never it, seen it. Uh, I've, it's very, I've had it's, recommend It's very
0: it. silly. It's very... Um, it's well
2: worth a watch. It, it is.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I wouldn't spoil it,
2: but there's a, there's a scene in it that, that had me sort of cackling as I watched it. I, I deliberately saw but yeah, there's a scene where I'm, it was full sort of barely laughs rolling on the set. Are you watching it? Because it, it, it's a fantastic little shot that you're not expecting. It's a great <laughs> film. Um, and yeah,
0: um, you mentioned Bad Taste and um, Braindead. Um, Dying Breed is another one. I don't know if you've seen that, about a cannibal family. Um, but I think, yeah, um, my favourite horror movie from Australia, I think is um, one called Patrick. Which um, is about a uh, a guy. Who, he's uh, he's he's locked in patient. He's he's conscious, but he can't can't move, can't do anything, and his brain develops telekinesis, uh, and of course he develops a. a, 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 a imaginary one-sided relationship with his nurse and then um starts typing out messages to her on a on a typewriter with his brain and then people die and um it was it's incredibly cheaply done but that was just the nature of the australian um uh cinema at the time and i think you know i'm surprised it's never been remade and with a bigger budget and and the story is fantastic but um that would kind of be my 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 big pick. Um but a lot of those you know the 70s Australian cinema um very brash and rather naive. Um you either know, had sort of biker movies or um awful sex comedies or um um yeah the Barry Humphreys, Barry McKenzie movies of fish out of water, beer swilling. Sheila Shaggin, bloke in London, all that sort of, you
1: know. Um, I think it grew, up, it
0: grew up very, very quickly, I think,
1: yeah, in the yeah. 80s. And, but I think, you know, kind of Australian cinema, I, I always find kind of interesting uh, that film I mentioned that started with a club. It, yeah. I think it's called the club. I, I, it's, I've, I've, I've watched it twice, I think, and there's still scenes that stick in my mind. And the problem I've seen it for 15 years it's just such a well made film and, you know, kind of, real dissection of what Australia is about. And I think that's what Australian cinema does really effectively. Australian cinema is always very good at looking at Australia in a way that American cinema and British cinema isn't always very good at looking at itself. British cinema has a a distorted view of what Britain is like. It's either heroic working class people playing brass instruments, or uh, posh people saving the world. Whereas for Australia, Australia understands where Australia is. And does that
0: really? Well, I, I, I think Dead Calm is a a movie that's quite unusual in an, in Australian cinema in that it's not about Australia at all. No. You know, um, it 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 could be it's it, it's anywhere, isn't it? It's the middle of the ocean. It's it's you know um, nothing about it is Australian necessarily per se. Apart
1: from the sense of isolation, really. You know, it's uh, yeah you know, it's, isolation and the landscape that is determined to kill you, but.
2: Yeah. I, other films that I had considered as well. Um, one that we've got coming up, what, what was thing as well, was uh, What We Do in the Shadows. I think that was one that I, I very much considered, but I'm going to use that somewhere else as, as well, you know. Um, I think if you can include Picnic at, at Onion Rock, you can probably include um, Heavenly Creatures.
1: Uh, the Heavenly Creatures was on yeah. my shortlist.
2: Yeah, <laughs> it, it very much delves into aura helem- elements enough that yeah. uh, it could be considered. Um The Baba Duck, which I of watched course. just after having a child, and that is the wrong time to watch that film. Um
1: well, it's a for... film about mental illness, isn't it? But the Baba Duck makes a fantastic um, it's film it's about a... mental illness.
2: Yeah, it's a it's a great film, and then sort of especially just after you've had a child and you've got that point a and sort of the effects that it has on, on everything. That was a great film to watch. Um, another one set on a boat in Triangle. I don't know if you've seen Triangle, which is Melissa George. Oh, um, which yeah, is a kind of British-Australian film. It's, it's,
1: it's Chris Chris Thomas is the guy who did Severance and also Bad Santa.
2: I think he <laughs> did Bad Santa. That's a, that's a random... No, not
1: no Bad Santa, sorry. It's called uh, Get Santa. Get Santa. It's a, film, a Christmas film with Rafe's uh, Rafe Spall in it. Uh,
2: yeah, Christopher Smith. Christopher Smith, Smith. that's it, who yeah. Did, yeah, he did Severance and Creep as well. Yeah. Um, which creep is a great film,
1: but but the underground creep, not the yes. uh, the blumhouse one, yeah, yeah. Yeah,
2: but it's a, a good film. But yeah, Triangle's worth a watch, and again, something that kind of messes with your thought process where you, you don't really know what's going on, and then the more the, you learn. Yeah, the time slip kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: That's a very good film. Yeah, okay, let's dig that one out.
2: Yeah. And then um as a fan of um anything. Water creature related in horror. I I love a good shark film or crocodile film or anything along those lines. So uh, Rogue, I consider, which is, again, we talk about basic horror. It's about a massive alligator. And Bait, which is about um, a tsunami that hits Australia and traps them all in a supermarket, along with a few deadly sharks, which is um, a great fun film. It was originally going to be produced in 3D, and so a few of the shots you get, you go, yeah, that was clearly the one that was meant for 3D. But just good, fun film. It's got crap dialogue. It's got some terrible acting. It's got the occasional bad CGI shark. But all in all, it's an absolute hoot to watch. I mean, until you've seen a couple in the middle of a tsunami kissing in a car, in a flooded car park with a dog barking and a shark swims over them. But that doesn't happen in many films, you've got to say. So that's, well worth, uh, that's well worth the look as well. It's worth having a panoramic roof in your car, isn't it? <laughs> it's such a silly, fun film. Like, it seems where they're all sort of on top of the freezers in this supermarket while the shark swims down the aisles between them and they've got to get it. Is it. It's great. I, th- I, I
1: think I've seen a scene from that, but I've not seen I've definitely seen that scene with the shark going down the aisles in the supermarket.
2: It, it, it's just and it, it's when I say as well bad CGI and poor dialogue, I'm not talking sort of um needle levels, it's not that level of, of bad, which some of those films I absolutely love, by the way. But it, it is sort of it's not going to win any Oscars, shall we say? So, um, and yeah, I, I don't think there's anything else then that I uh that I got on my list. So, well, that's the, all. On. The only other one I can think of is
1: a film called Lake Mango. Which is a kind oh, of yeah. found footage thing, uh, which I saw when it came out probably 20 years ago, now 15 years ago. That was fantastic. But I've never really tracked it down again since. But your know, film about grief and about loss, but then you one of the good found footage films.
2: Yeah, I've forgotten about that. That's yeah, yeah. So had I. That's a that's Isn't a great show. Yeah, take that one out again. So, if that's everything that we've got, that's all that's left is for Andy to deliver his judgment on which film he enjoyed most. Well, um,
0: it's difficult because um, they're such contrasting films. Yeah. Um, I mean, I remember going to see Dead Calm in the cinema when it came out and coming out actually shaking. You know, it was, it had that, it was, was so much tension yeah and at the end of it you know gri- white knuckle gripping the seat what you know um it, and it, it's it's a brilliant film great performances especially from nicole kidman um beautiful film um picnic hanging rock you know uh, written on the back of a napkin um <laughs> cost of fiver. Um I don't it, they're so different, so contrasting. But I guess the compromise of the ending for um uh Dead Calm. Um even though and Steph you hate the lack of an ending in, in um
2: yeah
0: a uh, picnic hanging rock but it's also about Australian cinema and Hanging Rock is so Australian, dead calm. As I said earlier, you know it can be anywhere, can't it? Really. So I think really have to pick picnic hanging rock. I'm afraid um, because of its <laughs> because it is an Australian film. It's you know it, it, and, it, and it's such a touchstone for Australian cinema as well. I, I used to share um, a flat with a, with people who Australians who believed the whole story was true, even though the movie the book the movie came out about 8 years after the book but it was so ingrained in australian folklore that people still didn't know whether it was real or not you know yeah. it was based on a real story if it was a, a, you know a real a dramatization they just didn't know they believed hanging rock was this weird strange spiritual portal even before they knew that there was a portal at the end of the book. It was just something otherworldly and stuff. And, and I think because it's so ingrained in Australian folklore and such an Australian film, um,
2: I have to go with Picnic at Canning Rock. Another win. Gav, you look incredible.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I am. Even you wasn't expecting that. <laughs> no. I thought my winning run came to an end right now, but there you go. <laughs> so I,
2: I don't even know what the score is other than a lot to you and one to me at the moment. And my one was a draw. So we're. Uh, I'm not off to the best of starts, it's fair to say, but uh, yeah, I think it, it's a fair decision. I think it is the most Australian of Australian horrors. It's the one Australian horror film that couldn't be set anywhere else. It yeah, It really yeah. wouldn't work anywhere. It's bound else. up in the whole identity of of empire
0: and colony and yeah. um, holding on to the last vestiges of the world they 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 really wanted for themselves, but they've got this poorer version of it where everything is trying to kill you and now even the rocks are trying to kill you
2: you (laughs) so on that note we'll start to to wrap things up Andy before you go where can anybody find you a big pardon sorry where where can people find you Um, well I uh, I currently
0: write for Mojo magazine Um, other than that I don't really have any online presence apart from Facebook um you know, uh, but, uh, yeah, um, I really should market myself better, shouldn't I? <laughs> <laughs> very possibly. <laughs> very
1: possibly.
2: I'm, I'm quite old school. You know? <laughs> You're doing all right anyway, I think. <laughs> uh, and so that's all that left is to say my thank you. So thank you, Andy, for joining us. A fantastic guest. Thank, thank and- you for having me. It's been, a,
0: been an absolute pleasure and, and um, very enjoyable.
2: Thanks again, Gav, for, for joining me and, and kicking my ass again on another <laughs> uh, another episode.
1: The win's and coming soon, Steph. The wind, your win is coming soon, I feel it.
2: I got there's a fight back coming. This is how it always works in these films. You've got it, you've got to be down to build yourself back up. It's a horror film, that's how it happens. Yeah, I, I, I'm, done that, mate. I, I'm the nickel Kidman of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, thanks to you for listening. Thanks very much, Plano. Bye. Now. Bye.